I had an experience in San Francisco last November that I will never forget. Um, we were down near um, Fisherman's Wharf, and there's a lot of uh, homeless people in that particular area, as many of you have been there know. And there was this, this homeless guy that was carrying a sign, like I said, that I'll never forget. Now, um, oftentimes you'll see signs like, need food or will work for food. And um, in my own personal experience, um, sometimes that may be the case, but oftentimes when I've tried to provide food or, or gas for somebody who's asking gas, what I quickly realize is, is that um, they really aren't interested in food or working for food, but rather they want money because they want to go buy booze. I mean, that's, that's the reality. That's not true in every case. Um, there are some who are legitimately hungry and in need, and others who kind of hold up the sign, need food, because they know it'll tug at your heartstrings of compassion, but then they're going to take that and, and do something else with it. Well, this particular guy in November in San Francisco held this sign, and the sign said this, need beer. That's what he said. That's all. He's right out there with it, walked around with the sign that says, need beer. And you know, there was something in me that wanted to actually give him money because he was being forthright and open about the fact that, hey, this is what I want, and I'm being forthright, honest with you. I want beer, so if you're willing to give me money, I'll go buy beer. Now, I didn't give to him. didn't want to enable an addiction, um, but there was an honesty to that in, in a sense of he's not trying to manipulate by uh, saying one thing, need food, when in reality, uh, wanting to spend it on something entirely different. Um, I don't think anybody likes to be manipulated, and I looked up that word because we, we have a tendency to manipulate one another oftentimes. Um, and Webster's would, would define it something like this. It's the aim to control through artful means to one's own private advantage. That is, uh, to control a person indirectly to get some private benefit that benefits you. Now, that whole idea, the capacity to manipulate and the inclination to manipulate people is not a homeless problem. It's a human problem. And it, uh, it starts when kids are very, very young. Um, at first, babies cry out of a sense of need. But those babies become toddlers and realize that I can cry and get mom's attention and sometimes get my way. So if the baby wants or the toddler wants ice cream and mom says no, well, then I can cry and maybe I'll be able to manipulate her heart and get ice cream. And pretty soon, the child's on the throne of the home, not the parent. And it kind of goes all the way up into the teenage and beyond years where your kid comes to the parent who is the most lenient, which is a choice they make, and they ask a question like this, hey, mom, I bought four Justin Bieber tickets. Uh, with my own money, I'm going to take three of my friends, the concert's tonight, and I told them, you drive. To which the even most lenient parent would probably respond something like this. So you bought tickets with your own money, invited three friends, and volunteered me to drive you tonight without asking my permission. Now, uh, any discerning high school student wouldn't say, yes, of course I did all this without asking your permission. They would grease the wheels with some kind of, of flattery. Well, no, Mom, I just figured that you would, you would want to take us. Besides, my friends love you. Now, I'm being a little bit over the top, but that stuff happens all the time. And it puts the parent in a very interesting position because at that point, tickets have been bought, friends have been invited, 
and you've been volunteered. And if you fail to follow through, then you look like the bad guy in your kid's eyes and his friends or her friends. On the other hand, if you cave in to the ploy, even if they give you the sad eyes, then you... um, you reaffirm their manipulation of you. Tough, tough spot to be. Manipulation. And yet, as I said, it's a human problem. We oftentimes manipulate one another as husbands, wives, children, friends, indirectly trying to get something else um, by maneuvering and manipulating things. Manipulation. And we oftentimes can be guilty of doing it to the Lord too. Now this particular chapter, this story in in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a classic example of God's people attempting to manipulate him to get him to act on their behalf in a very, well, personally benefiting way. That is, it's about God's people attempting to manipulate him. And it is a classic illustration of how you do not want to relate to the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 4, in the second part of verse 1. Now, before I get to the story, let me just tell you something that's interesting about these these next three chapters we're going to look at, 4, 5, and 6. In the first three chapters, we've been following, basically, a constant reference to this little boy named Samuel, who has grown up. He's ministered before the Lord. He's gained favor with God and with men. And by the time we get to the end of the third story, which I I think ends at the first part of verse 1, we read this about him, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So so God has uh, raised up for himself a prophet by the name of Samuel through whom he speaks to his people. That's um, the end of the third story. And then his name disappears for three chapters. After this reference in 4.1a, um, his name is not found in chapter, the rest of chapter 4. Chapter 5, chapter 6 is not found again in chapter 3, chapter 7, verse 3. And I believe there's intent and purpose why his name is, is left off. The fourth story begins with a, a and I, I, I'm hoping to show that to you in just a second. The fourth story begins with a crisis a political crisis, as often is found in the Middle East, um, in which we read this. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? What's interesting is that in chapter 4, verse 1, we read that the, the word of the Lord through Samuel had gone throughout all Israel, and yet in the middle of verse 1, we see that Israel, almost like a teenager, decides to act without asking. That is, there's someone that they could inquire of, a prophet, should we go to war? And later in 1 Samuel, you'll find that whenever King David, the stories are about the emergence of King David, Um, Whenever King David was in a crisis situation, he would stop 
and he would ask and inquire of the Lord, should I go to battle or should I retreat or should I go and should I flee? And the Lord would respond to him. Here we find in the first part of the story, there's the word of the Lord, and yet they go out to battle seemingly without inquiring of the Lord, should we do this? And it blows up in their face. Um, They're defeated. 4,000 men die. And the elders of Israel, or the leaders at the time, they get together and they ask an interesting question. They ask, right there, that last part there, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, they they get one part right, um, and that is they recognize that the defeat does not ultimately come from the Philistines. It's not because they're stronger, have greater uh, military uh, intelligence or, or technology, although they may have. They recognize this defeat comes from the Lord. The Lord allowed us to be defeated today, and we've lost 4,000 men. They get that part right. But they're asking why. Why why is it that we're being defeated? And they don't seem to pause enough to ponder that question, why, and evaluate who they are, their hearts, kind of take a spiritual pulse on where Israel is. Instead, we find that they concoct a plan. The Lord has, has allowed this defeat to take place. And so here's their plan. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is about, probably about 20 miles away from where the battle took place. Um, that it, that is the Ark, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there um, with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, probably everybody in here has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, we're just talking about the Ark's not talking about the ship with all the giraffes and hippos and, and uh, elephants in it. It's a, it's a small wood box overlaid with gold with these cherubim on, on top. And really, when, when it comes right down to it, it is the most sacred object of the Jewish faith in ancient times. Um, it was called, you'll notice it's, it's called here, um, um, who, sits, who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's, it's viewed as a, like the sovereign seat of Yahweh. Um, elsewhere, it's called the mercy seat. So you have this idea of the enthronement of God or his sovereignty along with his mercy and then it's, uh, it's called the Ark of the Covenant, that is relationship. So kind of all tied to this, this box with these cherubim on top is this idea of God's sovereign mercy in relation to his people. It was stored in the most sacred place of the sacred temple. It's where symbolized the presence of the Lord was. So really, the Ark of the Covenant was, was like the heart, human heart to a body. It's, it's at the very heart of their worship of Yahweh and symbolized sovereignty, mercy, or atonement, and also um, relationship or his covenant with his people. Now, the people of Israel in history um, would take sometimes the Ark into battle. We're told in Numbers that, that Moses talked about the enemies of the Lord fleeing before the Ark that the ark was carried around Jericho and they marched around Jericho and as a result, the, the walls fell down flat. So there's, a, there's some history of, of victory with this ark. Well, the Lord doesn't deliver. He, he allows the people of Israel to be um, defeated. So they think, well, maybe the problem isn't um, with us. Maybe the problem is with mechanics or maybe the sacraments. And so they decide, hey, we'll, we'll bring the ark down. We'll bring the ark down. 
Now, there's, a, there's something that's here in what is this question, why has the Lord defeated us, and then the, the consequent invitation or bringing the ark down to the people of Israel that I think is a tremendous mistake, um, a mistake of manipulation. You'll notice when they say at the first part here of verse 3, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, that is the Ark, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. That the Ark may save us. The Lord didn't save us. Maybe the Ark will save us. Now, probably one of two things is going on here. Either they view the Ark as some kind of a magical device, that it has power intrinsic to itself to defeat the enemies apart from the empowerment of God's grace. That's kind of the magical view, like a wand. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, magical view. They open the top, out come this light and these ghoulish kind of angels, and everybody gets wiped out, as if it has power in and of itself. That is possibility number one, a kind of a magical view of the ark, that we bring it down and kind of like a genie out of a box. We'll rub it, and, and out will pop the power of God, and our enemies will de- be destroyed. Well, magic in the Bible is always viewed as a divination, a manipulation of the divine. Um, that's option number one. Option number two is, is, for lack of better terms, an attempt to twist the Lord's arm. The thinking would go something like this. Well, the, the Lord would never allow the most holy object in the temple to be um, defeated or to fall into enemy hands. And so we'll bring down the sacred object, and it kind of forces God's hand to defend us. Now, whichever one you choose, the bottom line is they're trying to manipulate the Lord to win the battle, and they've never asked the prophet whether they should go to begin with. So to summarize what happens, in verse 5, we find that sure enough, they bring the ark down, and the, the armies of Israel are excited. They're not just excited, they're screaming. They're shouting so much that the ground begins to shake. It's like the genie in a box has shown up. So Israel's excited, and they're so loud in their triumphant shouting that the Philistines, who are nearby in their armies, they hear it. And they know from history, I mean, it records in verses 6 through 9, they know from history that the Lord in his power brought down Pharaoh and his mighty armies. They would have heard the legends and the history of how God defeated the Canaanite nations as, as he brought the people of Israel in. So they knew it was something different about this God called Yahweh or the I Am. And now they hear people shouting, the ground is shaking, and they hear that the ark of the Lord has come into the camp. And the Philistines, the text tells us, are afraid. They're afraid, as they should be. But... Apparently, someone gets up and has some kind of a William Wallace kind of speech and says, listen, men, we don't want to be servants to the Israelites, so, you know, be men of good courage and let's go fight this battle. So, you have the Philistines, scared but encouraged, coming against Israel armed with the Ark of God, which symbolized God's sovereign mercy in relationship to his people. That was the summary. This is what happens. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. 
they just didn't abandon the battle. They abandoned military service altogether. They all ran to their homes. Uh, Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a a very great slaughter. It's a way of saying there was a massacre where 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, Um, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Massive catastrophe. Um, A slaughter of, of, of Jewish brothers and sons, fathers, just slaughtered. The magic didn't work. The manipulation didn't work. The Lord did not show up on the battlefield. At least not in the way that the people of Israel expected. He showed up all right. But not to save. But to judge. That is, he carried out his word that he would bring down the house of Eli and hear its beginning. Now, this is kind of a spooky thing for me. When you think that God is on your side, you show up in the battlefield and and you have your genie in a box only to find out that the Lord is opposite of you. The Lord was working, but he was working judgment, not salvation. And not just on the house of Eli, but on the house of Israel itself. Why? That's the question. Remember the question they asked, why has the Lord defeated us? Why? Important lesson is to be learned here. Why? Before we get to that, we've got to finish the story. Because the judgment doesn't end there on the battlefield with 30,000 foot soldiers dead. The Ark of God, the most sacred object in Jewish worship of ancient times, has been captured by the enemy. Now, they're going to have a lesson to learn in chapters 5 and 6. But at this point, the lesson comes from Israel's loss of men, loss of the ark, and the two derelict priests are dead, Hophni and Phinehas. A messenger um, runs 20 miles. I'm just going to summarize some of it here. Uh, um, uh, From the tribe of Benjamin, runs 20 miles from the battle zone up to the town of Shiloh where the sacred object um, originally rested. That's where the tabernacle or the temple was. So he runs 20 miles, comes into the town, and tells the town what happened. And the town wails. I mean, we read historical accounts like in the Bible, and we don't recognize that the people who lived then have every bit as much of emotion and feeling of grief over loss that we do today. And the people of Israel had lost 30,000 men and 4,000 before that. That's, you know, one-third the population of Fairfield is gone. So the people in the, in the, in the city, they, they, they wail. Meanwhile, the most powerful man in Israel, a man by the name of Eli, we've, we've, uh, we've heard from him before, um, the high priest of the temple is waiting. He's sitting, listening for, for news of the battle. And he hears the town roar in wailing. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 14, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see, so he's old and he's blind. Verse 16, and the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, that is Eli, how did it go, my son? Uh, He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. 
Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. By the way, the the centerpiece of chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the ark, um, which has some tremendous lessons, I think, to teach the people of God. But here the ark has been taken. And verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. (laughs) The Bible isn't really into politically correct language. Basically, he was old and he was fat, and his neck couldn't bear the fall, so he died. So his two sons die, and he dies. And notice the little summary statement, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel. He was one of the judges 40 years. So two sons are now dead. Eli is now dead, but the judgment continues. We read about his daughter-in-law, one of the wives of his, of his derelict priest sons, the, the wife of Phineas. And there we read that apparently she... Uh, she had went into premature labor as a result of hearing about the, the, her husband's death, Eli's death, and the great slaughter and the ark of the Lord being taken. That's just like the, it's like the whole heart of the Jewish faith being taken out. There's no, no, no psychological description for how hard that would have been for God's people. But she goes into labor and she dies, but she dies after giving her son a name. Um, and she named the child Ichabod. Now, there's a lovely name to put on the list for possibilities for your son. Uh, Saying, and it literally means, uh, where's the glory? But it goes on and says, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel. Is there any more tragic statement? The glory has departed the church. God's sovereign, gracious presence has left. Now, we know ultimately that God's gracious presence does not leave his people. But this is a chapter of judgment. The people of Israel think that God's going to be on their side only to find out that he is disciplining and he is purging and he's bringing down the house of Eli in judgment. Now back to the question, why? Why has the Lord brought defeat? Now, you could answer that question by saying, well, he wanted to destroy Eli and his house. Historically, that's why. But I think it goes a bit deeper than that. Because the summary statement of the people of Israel, not just its priesthood, back at the very end of the book of Judges is the people did what was right in their own eyes. They lived however they wanted to live. Um, And it seems to me that in that living the way you want to live, meanwhile making use of God's sacred objects of worship, think that somehow God's going to be on your side because you have twisted his arm, fails to understand two things about God. Two things that we as believers, followers of Jesus, have to keep in mind all the time. Um, One of those things is that the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the God who created all things, does not bow to the agenda or the controlling mechanics of arrogant men. 
He does not bow to the control of religious machinery. And really, religion in the, in the generic sense is just an organized way to get God to do what you want him to do. And when the Lord set up his way of faith, like that is not who I am. You are not going to control me through your religious sacrifices or through taking the ark into battle. When that was kind of the culture of the day. Hey, if we want it to rain, bring the right sacrifice to the God of rain and paching, he'll give us what we want. It was a very manipulative form of religion. And the Lord, the Yahweh, the I am, is not that kind of God. You do not get me to do what you want me to do by sacrificing or going through the religious mechanics. The people of God always have to remember that, that he is the beginning and he is the end. He is the one who says in Isaiah chapter 40 that the nations are like a drop in the bucket to me that I can measure the entire expanse of the universe with the palm of my hand. Of course, it's speaking symbolically. Um, Or the one before whose presence the earth and heaven flee, Revelation 21. God's people must never mistake God's compassion and his grace and his mercy for the fact that he is also simultaneously majestic and holy and sovereign. And that what God delights in, and this is the second part, is that God responds to the heart. As I said earlier, the summary of the day of the people's hearts, if you were to take a thermometer and stick it into the people of Israel, it would come out and say they they did what was right in their own eyes. Now think about that for a moment. They lived kind of however they wanted. Meanwhile, they took an ark which symbolized God's sovereign mercy in covenant with his people. Covenant. It was as if God and his people were married and took vows to one another. And God said, I will protect you and I will be there for you. I will be gracious with you. But you need to trust me and love me. And out of that faith and love, you need to follow my instructions. Well, the people are living however they wish to live, but they still want God's protection. Now, let's bring that into a modern analogy. If you're a husband or if you're a wife, put it on the other foot. How would you feel if your husband or your wife decided they're going to go out and do whatever they wanted, live life, doing what's right in their eyes, meanwhile wanting your protection, your provision? That is part of the context of covenant. Sleeping around, doing drugs, spending all your money, where would it go? But that's essentially what they're doing. Bring the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God's sovereign mercy in covenant, and then live however we want to live. That's called hypocrisy. Rather, you know what they should have done? Instead of using the Ark, they should have bowed before the one it symbolized the sovereign of heaven who is merciful, who initiated a covenant by grace with them and humbled themselves in brokenness said, Lord, forgive us. For we have turned our heart to other things and we have used you rather than worshipped you. But they didn't use the ark 
rather than bowed before the God of the ark, who is sovereign, merciful, and bound himself in grace, in covenant with his people. Now, I believe that if they had done that, and they will do that in chapter 7, verse 3, because of the word of the Lord through the prophet. Listen. They had to learn the important lesson that, you know what? God's not going to be manipulated or twisted to do what we want him to do. What he wants from us is he wants a broken and contrite heart. He wants a heart that is humble, that looks to him and says, Be gracious to us, for we have sinned. We have violated the relationship with you. We have diminished your sovereignty. We have taken advantage of your mercy. And then God would have been gracious as he was to David in 2 Samuel. So now let me, let me bring this to the church. They lived their lives on their own agenda, doing what's right in their own eyes in defiance of the God that they worshipped, at least in terms of going through the motions. I'm just going to... Um, I, I run the risk of alienating people by, by saying certain things. I don't mean to do that. But if we were to take an honest assessment of where we are at as a collective whole as Christians, what would it say in looking at the evidence of our lives about our hearts? If people in the Christian community can live with the same addiction to illegal or legalized drugs that the world is addicted to. What does it say about the state of the heart? If the lack of commitment to endure, forgive, and persevere in marriage as, law, as far as it is possible is missing or it is lax. What does it say about our heart? If there is just as much sexual laxity for those inside the Christian community as outside, what does it say about the heart? We can go through the motions of reading the Bible, coming to church, fellowshipping, and praying all we want. But if we're living life, doing what's right in our own eyes as evidenced by behavior, then where is our heart? And are we living in contradiction? to the sovereign God who is merciful and poured out his mercy and his wrath on the cross to bind us to him in covenant. If so, and I realize this doesn't apply to everybody, but I think the general state of affairs means that it applies to perhaps many We can't expect God to be gracious to us 
if we're living however we want in hard-hearted sin or justification and accept him, expect him to be merciful. I don't know how else to say that. Except the passage calls us to look at our heart. Where is my heart before the Lord? Am I living however I want to live and still going through the motions of religion, thinking that if the mechanics are right, somehow God's going to accept me, which is another form of manipulation? And if so, if there is genuine, justified, hard-hearted compromise to do what the Scripture tells us to do, namely to humble ourselves and acknowledge and be honest with the Lord, we have drifted far from you. Our covenant with you has been, at least on our side, it's in shambles. Knowing that the Lord lifts up the humble, knowing that the one that the Lord takes pleasure in, Psalm 147, are those who fear him, that is a sense of awe, and those who hope in his steadfast love. And instead of trying to use religion, use church, use your Bible, use prayer, use the Lord's table, to kneel down and humble oneself and and to rediscover what it means to be a humble trusting worshiper of Christ. You know, the ark was a symbol. But it was a symbol of God's sovereignty. It was a symbol of God's mercy, a symbol of God's covenant. But the substance of God's sovereign mercy and covenant is found in one place. And that's Jesus. Um, To whom God has given all authority, that's his sovereignty, in whom we find Um, immeasurable riches of mercy and in and through whom he has bound himself in covenant to us. And if we're willing, if we recognize by looking at the evidence of our behaviors, Lord, I'm I'm not too much different than the Israelites of chapter 4 for Samuel. Then to bow before the sovereign mercy of Christ and to humble ourselves and repent. This, this is a pretty potent word for, for the church, I think. And I hope before you come to the Lord's table that you'll take time to examine your own heart and your own life and say, am I playing the game or is this real? And if it's real, then come and be um, filled and be nourished by what this represents, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. But if you're playing a game, let's not, let's not mess with the mechanics of religion when our hearts are wrong. And recognize that he is merciful, he is gracious, and if his people will but get on their knees, if they will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, well, then I will heal. So I, I, I pray and ask you as, as a fellow brother, to allow the Lord to search your heart and mind before you come to the table, which represents the sovereign mercy and the covenant with the Lord. I'm going to pray, and as I do, um, I'm going to ask the servers to come up, and then we will also have elders at the two corners here by the doors. And if you just want um, to be prayed for for whatever reason, for whatever reason you want to be prayed for, um, then come up and we would have, uh, we would love to, to 
have the joy of praying over and for you. Um, So they will be on the sides, and then again, just ask yourself, where is my heart before the sovereign mercy of Christ? Lord, I ask that in these moments as we come to your table, which is is just a a symbol of, of the profound and immeasurable love and mercy that you have for your people, that you would um, open up our hearts to see things uh, more like you see them. And, and if we have justified our way of life so that we can live however we want to live while at the same time going through the motions of religion, Lord, I pray for deep, profound conviction and brokenness, um, knowing, knowing that when there is deep, profound brokenness and contrition, that, Lord, you are merciful and you restore and you heal. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.